0: Your nose is to the grindstone, day after day. You spend your work hours overworked and underappreciated, only to return home and deal with bills, landlords, and the ever-oppressive shadow of capitalism, consuming you and everything you love. The horrors of capitalism are the horrors we all face, and they are confronted head-on in Pearl tales of horror and class warfare contained within our 19 tales of capitalism gone wrong. From designer children to deadly bosses, predatory lenders to plague-ridden laborers, stories from the dark imaginations of Haley Piper, Laurel Hightower, Joanna Koch, and many more. You won't want to miss it. Prolisgariot, coming International Workers' Day, May 1st. Here at HorrorOasis.com, we are advocates of the horror genre and strive to amplify underrepresented voices in the horror community. This space is for indie artists to promote their work. Please enjoy your stay, and hopefully it's not your last.
1: Welcome to Dead Space, now a part of Silver Shamrock's HorrorCast, a podcast network that includes Killing Time with Silver Shamrock and Unburying the Dead, where we exhume classic horror paperbacks for the new generation. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Ghana, YouTube, and all other major platforms. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hi, Brennan. Hello, everybody. And we are joined today by the author of Fight Club Choke, and consider this, Chuck Palahniuk. Say hi, Chuck. Hi, Chuck. How's it going, my friend? Uh, How's it going, my friend? (laughs) I should stop now, right? Okay. (laughs) Let's just start off uh, the baseline question is, uh, what got you into horror? Uh, You know...
2: That is a damn good question because my dad hated horror movies and my mother loved horror movies. I think it is a gender thing. Uh, Yeah, but my dad took us to Carrie. Oh, yep. You know, we were not of age. It was (laughs) not an appropriate movie for four small children, but it told us all about menstruation. Mm -hmm. And it told us what, what eventually happens. So, it was educational. It was one of those joint custody days, you know, when, when the estranged dad doesn't know where to take the kids. Mm-hmm. So, he thinks, let's take the kids to to carry, okay? <laughs> He's got lots of nudity. So, my dad was always taking us to really inappropriate movies. And my mother was always taking us to really inappropriate horror movies. So... Uh, I grew up recently, I I asked my students, I gave them a a copy of this very low-level horror movie, a a fake documentary called uh, Legend of Boggy Creek. It was shot for like $9,000, and it ended up as a fake documentary making millions and millions of dollars, and uh, that is the first most frightening movie that my mother ever took us to. So that's the long answer. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm definitely writing that uh, film down. Brennan, take us away.
1: The, leg-
0: the Legend of Boggy Creek. I've never heard of that. Me either. What, what's the rundown on that?
2: It made so much money that they made sequel after sequel. It was a fake documentary during the height of the Bigfoot, uh, Bigfoot sort of phenomenon in the early 70s. Hmm. And it was about the Falk Monster, which is in like far Falk, Arkansas. Uh, it's a southeastern state. And so it's basically the Southeastern kind of hillbilly version of the Bigfoot.
0: You, you talked a little bit about getting into horror movies, but with uh, horror literature specific, I've heard you talk about Rosemary's Baby by Ira Levin a, a lot. And uh, you, you wrote an introduction for a 2011 reissue of that. What what makes that kind of such a special
2: story in
0: the history of horror for you?
2: You know, it really ticks all the boxes. Uh, Ira Levin endorsed one of my one of my books back in two thousand two, and we started corresponding. And so he's one of the few horror writers that I was able to pick his brain and find out why he did, why he wrote what he wrote. And with Rosemary's Baby, he kind of wanted to write a really cathartic version. Of uh, Something around uh, uh, thalidomide, the the sedative that was being given to pregnant women, oh. and uh, and having them give birth to these really severely, you know, disfigured children, and so the uh, he he thought you know the the mystery of you not knowing what's inside of you, what you're carrying. He wanted to write about that, hmm. but the originally he thought about aliens impregnating women, but the midwitch cuckoos, which was the source material of the original novel for uh village of the damned, the midwitch cuckoos that had just come out. So he couldn't write about aliens. So instead he wanted to write about the, the devil. That was his idea that the devil would impregnate this woman. Uh, it, was, it was kind of the era of drug taking and Anton LaVey And so everything sort of seemed to be coming to a head around that. But in retrospect, he had this enormous enormous misgiving about having reinvented the Gothic novel in such an effective way, because for the rest of his life, he felt really responsible for having kind of mobilized and weaponized uh, evangelical Christians and charismatic Christians. He really felt that by making the devil such a tangible possibility in people's lives that he created the whole, you know, the follow through with The Exorcist and so many occult movies in the 70s. Mm. And th- those really created the, the really born again Christian movement that shaped the rest of, you know, Western history for the next 20 or 30 years. And so if he hadn't written Rosemary's Baby, we might not have had this kind of resurgence of charismatic Christianity, that he felt very mm, regretful about. So in a way, Rosemary's Baby was such a landmark narrative. It was reinventing the Gothic. It was touching on thalidomide, touching on the women's movement and the fact that women had very little control over their reproductive health. It was touching on so many unstated issues that the culture could not deal with. And then it was kind of, literally raising the devil so that for the next 30 years people would be responding to this possibility of, of the devil manifest. It really wasn't a, a, mo- a movie and a book that, that was a tidal wave in its effect on the culture. And I think Ira Levin felt a lot of regret about just, you know, what a huge impact it had.
1: Man, that's gotta be strange to write something that you're, you got one thing in mind and then the whole nation or the world just takes it
2: in a whole another level. Exactly. It's like you kind of wrote MindConf as a joke <laughs> and people picked it up and ran with it and said, Hey, you know, this, uh, 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 what am I thinking of the, uh, the sort of precursor to Mein Kampf. Uh,
1: I don't know what that one is. Oh,
2: protocols of, uh, protocols of, uh, I have to Google uh, it. I'd have to uh, go. With, sorry, know. I can't help you there. <laughs> protocols of Scion? I'm the very anti-Semitic right book that was sort of a it was supposed to have witnessed this this meeting of of the sort of Jewish cabal in a in a public park. Uh, protocols of it is classic Nazi literature. But it's it's like you wrote one of those books It's, it's just kind of a lark, and the world picked it up and took it completely seriously. And it was out of your hands at that point, and you know we, we um, protocols of the elders of Zion. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> sorry to interrupt. <laughs> no, 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 that's
0: okay. You got it faster than Google did. That's impressive. Ah. Um, we, you know, we we've been um, diving into some older horror classic paperbacks, um, including we're about to dive into this one, um, and another one we yep. hit was Psycho. <laughs> Um, from 1959. And it seems like they both kind of have that ahead of their time uh, notion about them uh, with Psycho being in 1959. And I think this one was 1967, maybe. Um, Now, one thing I found really interesting in your introduction to the book was kind of putting forth that this story kind of changed the way we look at horror from instead of having to travel to it, instead of having to go to Dracula's castle, or uh, even though it came later to go to the overlook hotel out in the Colorado mountains, this is horror coming to us. Uh, And, and that, that just became a game changer for the entire genre going forward. Now, you know, when I first started reading your books and we're talking like, you know, 20 years ago now, almost, um, I don't think I would have classified you as a horror genre, and that's on me, of course. But um, how have you worked that into some of your own stories? You know, if you could share an example or two.
2: Well, you know, I really didn't set out to write horror. I wanted to write transgression, transgressive fiction because so many, so many of the books I really loved were with these transgressive books where people kind of found a a new way to be alive by acting out Uh, books like train spotting. But then 9-11 happened. And after September 11th, everything that had been about rebellion and kind of urban pranking all suddenly fell under the umbrella of terrorism. So everything transgressive was now terrorism. Uh, So I thought, you know, before, when people were in similar kind of suppressed times, they wrote horror. And horror and science fiction were a way of kind of addressing these same things in a more palatable, you know, genre. And so starting with Lullaby, uh, my book Lullaby, where people find that they check this book out of the library, they read it to their baby, and the next morning their baby is dead and it's, it's diagnosed as crib death. And then it's gradually discovered that whoever put together this, this incredibly cheap book lifted a bunch of public domain stories and poems, one of which was an actual spell that was used to kill children during times of famine or, or whatever. So all of these copies of this cheap public domain book are out there in the world, killing people, and so in some way that has to be resolved. So in a way, I was addressing piracy, the way Hmm. people will sort of pick and choose and aggregate. I love that word. It basically means I don't want to do anything for a living, so I'm going to aggregate other people's stuff and create my own whatever. So what happens when you are fooled into aggregating something that has an innate deadly power. And so in a way you are fooled into disseminating this incredibly dangerous thing. I love that idea. Hmm. That'd be a cool title. Aggregate. <laughs> no, it's a terrible title.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think, uh, I think Fun, Patrick yeah. might have been uh, going off of your... Actually, we, we were kind of curious. Let's Yeah, a go good there. segue. You know what? Yeah. what Chuck said um, a bad time, so
1: fuck it. <laughs> so <laughs>
0: when, when you title a book, uh, you tend to go kind of very simple and self-explanatory on it. Now, is there a reason, a story behind, you know, how you title books? Is it just something you don't like to do or do you just want everybody to know what they're going to get on the
2: surface? You know, originally... When I started with Fight Club, I thought that my entire career, I would do these kind of oxymoronic two-word titles. So Fight and Club are both kind of, they kind of negate each other. One is kind of, you know, fraternizing and the other one is kind of conflict. So I wanted to have these two very disparate words together, invisible monsters. Uh, Survivor was originally called Unnatural Disasters. Uh, a diary was originally called Period Revival. So I really wanted two word titles for all my books, but my editor ended up being the editor for, uh, for Irving Welsh who wrote Spotting," And Irving Welsh was being branded with one word titles. So my editor said, we've got to brand you with one word titles. And no matter what I wanted after Fight Club, he stuck a different one word title on it. And I was kind of stuck with that. Okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I love that. We, we, we got the director's cut on those on, on, on four of those. That's really interesting. Um, Patrick, I'm sorry. I interrupted you. Go ahead, buddy.
1: That I'm glad we heard that because like that, that's the complete opposite of what I thought. That's a great question, Brennan. You know what? Uh, before I forget, I thought Chuck would like to know this. Um, it's pretty pretty neat. I told my brother-in-law that I was going to have you on my show, and uh, he is a Marine. He was in Iraq, and he said, that's cool, because when I was over there, uh, Chuck Palahniuk and Brett Easton Ellis were the only books that we read. He's like, we all of us read them over there, and I just thought, like, that's really cool that while he's literally fighting for this country, he's he's reading fiction and and that's his, I, I would assume I'm putting words in his mouth now, but I would assume that's his escape from this literal hell. And there's nothing more to it. I just thought you'd like to know that, man. I asked him if there's anything he wanted to tell you, but he just said he, he had nothing besides that. So thank you for uh, helping my brother-in-law when he was
2: over there. You know, and that's a big reason why I write is because In a way, reading is the thing you go to when there's nothing else to go to. Mm -hmm. And so I try to write in circumstances where people are under a huge amount of stress. I write it at hospitals. I love to write at airports because that is where people need the most distraction, you know, during the worst, most stressful times of their lives. And so if I can't write in those circumstances, then I know my narrative can't compete with the circumstances in which people will be reading those books.
1: That's, wow, that's really smart. Uh, I know some writers that can only write in, in silence. Uh, I, I like writing with music, but that's pretty neat. I, I want to try that out sometime, just writing with distraction. Um, I don't think we should go too long without making a shout-out to the only listener with two questions, a mutual friend of ours and Chuck's. Uh, this episode would not have happened without Tyler Jones for that. We thank you, Tyler. Uh, he had two questions that uh, go along um, some pretty interesting areas. Uh, the first question he asks is uh, define, he'd like you to define liminal spaces
2: and limnoid events. Ah, uh, uh, So uh, a lot of what I do uh, was described theoretically by a British cultural anthropologist named Victor Turner. And Victor Turner, his work is also a little bit explored by uh, uh, Lewis Hyde, uh, the academic who's written some fantastic books uh, like Trickster Makes This World and The Gift. So according to Victor Turner, there are events in the world uh, throughout our lives that are called liminal events. And the liminal refers to kind of threshold So there are the the events that happen between this part of our life and the next part of our life.
1: Hmm.
2: And the classic example is the honeymoon. When people get married, they have to leave their community for an archetypal three days. And three days is kind of the completely classical amount of time. Uh, uh, Jonah was inside the whale three days before he was barfed up. After Christ was killed, this being... Good Friday. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He went to hell for three days. And so typically, when you're in a liminal state, you have to leave the culture for three days. And when you come back from honeymoon, you are recognized no longer as two single individuals, but as a united couple who will be united in the eyes of their peers for the rest of their lives. So other examples, other sort of characteristics of of liminal events is they tend to be characterized as kind of uh, between seasons. They might be like Halloween, which is between the sort of autumn and the winter or however you see it between life and death, but it's characterized by a reversal of the power hierarchy. So people who have no power, children, dress as things that are between things they they dress as beasts animals or they dress as outcasts like cowboys or hobos or transients or they cross dress in the clothing of another gender or they dress as things that are dead and not dead like ghosts or zombies or vampires so these these members of the community who have no power dress as these kind of in between archetypes, and then they go around and they demand tribute. And if you don't give them tribute, they're allowed to do property damage. Until the 1920s, Halloween had become such an evening of property damage that in the, in the 20s, insurance companies who were paying for all the slash tires and all the burned down houses and all the wrecked fences, insurance companies went together with major newspapers and decided, we have got to reinvent Halloween. So Halloween suddenly became, they matched up with candy companies. And they said, how about if kids go out and we give them candy and we don't have to pay all these insurance claims. So in the 20s, that's when Halloween became what we know. But before that, it was really about this enormous shakedown of people with property were basically blackmailed to give tribute to people who had no property. Uh, Christmas caroling was very much the same. Another limnoid event, well, limnal event, where people would go. People who had no power, no money, they would go to the to wealthy people, and they would sing Christmas carols, and they would be rewarded with money and with food and with liquor. Uh, there were also there's so many things like uh, old funerals. You know what, why we give flowers at a funeral? It's because In old times, when people with resources had someone die in their family, people who were poor in the community, would they would go out and they would gather herbs and flowers. And there was something called the the rite of passing over, where the poor people would stand on one side of the casket and the rich people, the, the, the grieving people would stand on the other side of the casket. And the poor people would pass the flowers over the dead body. And the rich people would pass food and money over the dead body to the poor people. Mm. So again, we have a a liminal moment between life and death in which the power hierarchy is being reversed for one one time. Lent used to be a free for all. During Lent in the uh, medieval era, era, Lewis Hyde writes about this. The clergy in medieval cities would ride on horse carts and they would throw feces at people in the crowds and people were allowed to go into churches and to eat and to drink and to fornicate. So it was this complete reversal of the status quo for just one day. Uh, Anyway, liminal events, they traditionally occur between one state and the next state, whether it's between life and death, uh, between seasons, uh, between states of being married or single. Limnoid events, limnoid events are things that have the characteristics of liminal events, but they can happen anytime. They're like Burning Man. Hmm. They're like concerts where typically you go and you pay a fee. And one characteristic is that there is a flattened hierarchy of, of status, a flattened status hierarchy where everyone has the same sort of social status at, at Burning Man. Nobody is up, nobody is down. And so what I love to do is invent limnoid events, like Fight Club would be a limnoid event. It only exists during the time when it's actually taking place. It can take place anywhere. You have to be kind of informed to go there. And when you go there, you are no more important than anyone else who's there. So. So many of my books are about creating these limnoid uh, rituals, which sort of mimic liminal, traditional liminal rituals. And now I've just given you the wonkiest, longest answer yet. <laughs> I love it. I and I, I see your eyelids just sinking no, down. No, not at all. No way, no, man.
1: See,
0: I, no, I'm curious. Now, my <clears throat> my favorite from your back catalog is Haunted. It, it always has been so would you consider uh, the gathering of you know, the writers to craft their masterpieces? Does that fit into your explanation?
2: Every writer's workshop, every kind of creative <laughs> kind of sequestering is yeah. a limnoid event where you're stepping out of the world. There is no power structure. Everyone is kind of equal and you're away from the world long enough to be validated in what you do but eventually you have to break up and go back into the world. Uh, Hmm. I've taught at workshops where people have studied together for six weeks. And after those six weeks, they're more emotionally attached to each other than they are to family that they have known for decades. And it's heartbreaking to see them come apart. So yeah, any kind of artistic workshop or, uh, you know, sequestering is a a completely a event. In, that is I,
0: very interesting. I'm, I, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm thinking through all these other stories now of just different um, events and occurrences where you have people from all walks of life, um, all stages of hierarchy brought to the same level uh, in order to move the story forward. Uh, no question here. I'm just thinking out loud.
1: <laughs> I, uh, you know what? I just want to talk about haunted super quick. Guts had, the most physical reaction that I've, and for any story that I've ever read, man. um, I We had Joshua Chaplinsky on yesterday, him and he, he was telling us a story about how him and his friend Dennis uh, went to, it wasn't Fight Club, uh, was it Invisible Monsters, Brennan? He was telling us in, Stat, I think, Staten Island. I'm not sure, honestly. I'm pretty sure he said it was for a signing of Invisible Monsters. Dennis said to you that he was going to <laughs> right, he's gonna make a website for you, and you're the. I don't know how it actually went, obviously, but the basically what we were told is that you were like, Oh, okay, and then he did it and he kept at it and now he runs your page, which that's pretty neat. Is there Any, anything on your made end?
2: Pet Cemetery last year, what wait, who did uh, Dennis? Holy, she directed wait. Pet Cemetery, the remake. I didn't know, oh. oh my god, wow. I didn't know that it was. <laughs> It was Dennis and Kevin and Amy who came to me that night and said, we all work at the same Barnes and Noble, and they were so sweet, and they were all like 18 or 19 years old, and they said, can we do your official site? And I didn't even know what the internet was. So I said, (laughs) do it. Just do it. Well, that was the late 90s, right? Uh, Yeah, it was. Uh, Mid to late 90s, yeah. Oh, yeah. I can't even
1: imagine it was very it, it was different it was a lot different I'm trying to think man I was I was like 10 and 99 so <laughs> I'm not trying to age you Chuck at all Thank so that, you. <laughs> you look better than me at any point so I'll put that out there um, but the neat thing about for listeners of the show is that your episode airs three days before Joshua's comes on so it's it's kind of cool like you got two sides of that story but um, I didn't know he wow, he did not tell us that he directed Pet Cemetery. I gotta look into that. That's really that's that's a yeah. big deal. Um, let's move on to Tyler's second question. I love this one. Do you think social media is a form of LARPing? aka for those that don't know what that is, live action role-playing. Uh, <laughs> it's –
2: It's hard. I, I'm a tough one to ask because it's not a big part of my life. This kind of management of public perception. Mm-hmm. Um, I got over that in high school. You know, I reached a point in high school where, where I realized that I could either kind of um, invest in what people thought of me, or I could forget about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really, I really haven't really given a shit. You know, I think that's kind of a a blessing. So it definitely is. Yeah. I can't say. Yeah. Well, just
1: to piggyback off of that. I mean, I see some, I'm not knocking them, but I see some writers get really beat up and it eats at them with like negative reviews and so forth. So yeah, it can, it can definitely live inside your head. How about we talk about LARPing though, uh, what, what is it that, that you find so interesting and intriguing of it?
2: You know, uh, I love the idea, I used to be part of Cacophony Society. And Cacophony Society was this kind of collective of people in several different cities. It started in San Francisco. It opened up chapters in Seattle, Los Angeles, uh, Chicago, Portland, Oregon. And in it, people, people, anybody could propose an event. And they would say, okay, we're gonna do this event and we are all gonna wear ridiculous Alice in Wonderland costumes and everyone is gonna bring a 50 pound sledgehammer and we're gonna play croquet with bowling balls in a public park. And we're not gonna give a rat's ass what people think of us. We're gonna look like complete idiots while we do this huge costumed thing. And it was always a great experiment because when it worked, then it worked on such a scale that the culture would adopt it. There, There used to be something called the, uh, the Beta Breakers Run in San Francisco. I think it still exists, but Cacophony Society decided that they would create these huge sequined salmon costumes. And as people ran in one direction in these massive numbers, members of Cacophony Society would run against the tide like salmon trying to swim upstream to spawn. And so they would jump against these huge walls of runners trying to run against them in these giant like, 10, 12 foot salmon costumes. And it was ridiculous, but it was so spectacular that within a couple of years, Nike had a, a commercial where they had people wearing 10, $20,000 salmon costumes jumping against the wall of runners because it had been modeled so effectively by Cacophony Society in that kind of crazy experiment. Burning Man started the same way and now, Burning Man has been kind of adopted by the world, but it just started as this mm-hmm. crazy little, what would happen if we did this? Uh, Santa Rampage started as, let's all dress as Santa. Let's all adopt the name Santa so that no one can get busted. We all have the same name and we'll all go out drinking and have these huge riotous parties in public places. And Santa Rampage is now an institution. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. So basically larping is a small scale experiment that allows people to sort of test a way of being test a kind of way of presenting themselves to see if other people will adopt it to see if it will serve people better than the existing ways of being and if it does serve people better then people will adopt it and run with it and that's not you could say it's it's a it's a uh what do young people say when people sort of uh, appropriating, appropriating, oh, is yeah, that yeah, the yeah. term? Yep. Cultural appropriation. I believe it is. Yeah, yeah. You're kind yes. of presenting a way of being and you're hoping that people will culturally appropriate it and run with it. Because it's, it's not about you being kind of lauded and honored. It's about this thing you've created going out and taking over the world. And so in a way, when I created this little model for Fight Club, it was thrilling when I heard that people were actually doing Fight Clubs around the world. Hmm. Cacophony Society was always about LARPing a little thing, a little experiment, and doing it so successfully that, that a million other people would want to do it. Hmm. I, I love and consider this where you
1: refer to I forget the phrase that you use, but like in Fight Club, um, there is, you know, the, the repeated phrase, how you say throughout the the book and uh, you do that with a few things, um, I believe instead of chapter breaks in some cases. Uh, is there is there anything that you kind of want to throw out there for potential readers about consider this? Because I, me and Brennan, we both think that it's uh, kind of a, a book where people should read that, especially want to learn the craft. It's got... A lot of different takes on it. The industry, too, that you're just like, this is how it is. I'm laying the cards out. You, you know, it's uh, you're either at one point, I think you say a writer is going to write. And if you're not meant to be a writer, you're not going to write. So it's it's a lot of empowering things for me anyways. Is there anything on
2: that book that you want to throw out there for maybe a potential reader? You know, and it's funny because that book came out of nowhere and it became number two on Audible's bestseller list this week. A friend of mine said... Oh wow! Well, how did this come back from the dead? But <laughs> it's uh, number two. That's that's good. Congrats! But uh, one thing that Ira Levin impressed on me, and consider this was so much, acknowledging the contributions of all these fantastic writers that I got to meet over the last 25 years, because nobody really sets out. You're not. You're never trained, especially if you come from a blue collar background. You're not trained in how to be a writer. So when you write something, you end up being like this Anne Rice vampire and you have to go out and find other vampires and kind of learn how to be from them. Yeah. And so I went out, I sought out people like Catherine Dunn who wrote Geek Love and Ira Levin. And I asked them, you know, how do you do this job? And one thing that Ira Levin, again, the Rosemary's Baby guy, he said, "People don't realize they think that that writing a narrative is about solving the problem, but 99.9% of writing is about creating the perfect problem. If you can get the problem right, it doesn't. It almost doesn't matter how you solve it. Having the right problem is so much of the thing, and people will start out with these really sort of lame problems." And that's why the story doesn't go anywhere. You've got to have a problem that is so unique but also so culturally coded and so kind of a a statement of something that no one wants to say. Uh, Historically, horror has always been about the thing that no one wants to acknowledge in the room and finding a metaphor for talking about that thing. But the idea that the problem is the entire game it had never occurred to me. Same, likewise, Brennan.
0: You know, semi-related to that, because you, when you when you're talking about finding an interesting problem, something that speaks to everybody, you know, I'm thinking of that on kind of a macro level. But one of the parts that stuck out to me uh, was you, you talked about how if you're you know getting into a piece of work and you're finding yourself not sure where to go or you know potentially even bored you need to make sure that you're finding something that you're working through you know and I know Patrick and I are both big believers in using our own writing as you know a therapy a way to work <laughs> out things that we don't know how to talk about or address in any other way yeah. and I, and I thought that was such a, a a poignant element to it to say if you don't know what to do next you almost need to look inward, um, and say, what am I trying to work out? What am I trying to figure out? How am I going to put myself, um, into this story? Um, again, no question here, but, um, I, I just think that's such an interesting way to look at it, not just using writing as therapy, but demanding that you need to use writing as therapy. Now, did I misrepresent, or is that something you believe in?
2: That's something that uh, has always served to me, and that comes from my, my best writing teacher, Tom Spanbauer. Tom always said that you need to be writing about an unresolved, unresolvable personal issue, because that way it will always bring you back to the page. And that way, if you never sell your work, you still get the benefit of having kind of exhausted all of your emotional reaction to the circumstance. Typically it's a circumstance where you cannot resolve the circumstance itself. Your mother died. That's it. Your mom died. Your dad died. Uh, You had a shitty childhood. You cannot resolve that. You cannot fix that, but you can't exhaust your emotional connection to it. So. Find a metaphor that allows you to explore whatever the issue is, explore it, exaggerate it, make it worse than it ever possibly could have been. And in doing so, you exhaust your physical reaction to it so it no longer holds any power over you. You know how people, so many people will tell the same story over and over because it still holds so much juice for them. And the idea is to completely destroy, completely exhaust that story. The other other aspect to it is also to take it to people that you are presenting it to people in workshop or you're just talking to your friends about it. When you come come up against a dead end, to take it to good listeners and say, I'm working on this, but I'm a little stuck. And to see number one, whether they engage with it Do they instantly engage with this thing? And can they take it in a different direction? Because it's a good way for them to help you to explore angles or aspects on it that you would probably only get through a really good analyst. So in a way you are using the public, you're using your, your listening audience as this sort of analyst who can continually help you unpack this personal issue.
1: You two just unlock something for me. I find myself—you uh, don't know this, Chuck—but my boy, I'm first-time dad. Uh, my boy is a little over a year and a half. Most of the time, I'm writing about a horrific death of a—it's usually a son because that's my biggest fear, and it's—I hone in on the gruesome brutality of the details of how he dies, and sometimes.
2: I kind of tear up because I'm always thinking of my boy, Phil. You know, Jodi Picoult made a, an enormous career out of that. She writes constantly about the dead and the dying and the missing and the absent child. And there's a, a vast audience for that because that is so many people's worst fears. Jodi Picolt. How do you spell her last name? Oh, geez. She's, well, a, I, she's I, a, I a, a huge writer. P. I. C. C. O. U. Uh, L. T.
1: You know, man, I I probably should know her, but I've I have not read her before.
2: It's you always. Know, I that's a, sorry, Chuck. Go ahead. It's always the kid in the Jody Picault novels. <laughs>
0: You know, I, I was going to say that fits that bill of unresolvable so well, because, you know, I'll tell you, I've I've, I've got an eight year old and a 10 year old and that fear of something bad happening to them, you know, of, of their safety being outside of your control. It never goes away. Sorry, man. You're not going to get any more sleep in eight years than you are now.
1: <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, he hasn't played with many kids, you know, because of covid because he was yeah. born right before it. And uh, the few times we've been with family, uh, small groups of family recently only, um, it, it's awesome seeing him being happy, but at the same time, he wants to play with more and more kids and more and more, I guess, being the writer I am, I'm just always thinking of the worst situation.
2: I'm trying not to be a hovering parent, though. You know, and you don't get any relief unless you can exhaust that worst case scenario. And in a way, what your readers want you to do is to take their worst case scenario and to make it worse and to make it worse than they could ever imagine it. And then to show someone living through it, someone surviving what they themselves could never imagine surviving. And if you can do that, they will love you so much because you've shown them that they themselves can survive something far worse than they could ever imagine.
1: This feels like an extension of cons- your book, Consider This, because it's just I'm taking all these mental notes, man. And uh, I think I want to hone in on that because that's truly my biggest fear. So, yeah, that. thank you for that. That's that's a lot to consider. Brennan, um, you got anything else that you want to move on to? Or, Chuck, do you want to talk anything
2: on this particular subject? You know, there's something that I, I, it used to be that you could put a whole bunch of kind of factual data, a big information dump into a narrative. And people would be like, wow, he's a smart guy. I need to believe, <laughs> I need to believe his story Yeah, as he knows all about the history of dyeing cloth or, you know, I don't know, uh, some, some lens history they used to call them. Mm-hmm. But more and more, Facts have become so kind of questioned and so degraded in the public mind that you could say, uh, tell a friend, you know, the sky is blue. And your friend would instantly say, what's your source? (laughs) And it doesn't matter what the source is. They're going to say, "Wow, they're full of shit. You know, Breitbart, Fox, CNN, whatever it is. If they say the sky is blue, it's not blue. Can you? Oh, I'm sorry, Chuck. Go ahead. Facts no longer really carry any authority whatsoever unless they're really tied to an emotional uh, sort of triggering an emotional state, sort of an emotional stimulation, Mm -hmm. whether it's terror or whether it's love or whether it's complete sympathy or it's a sympathetic physical state like guts or humiliation (laughs) that facts don't really carry any authority anymore. You can't just be a smart guy on the page. You can't just crib Wikipedia and seem like a smart woman. Anymore, the only way to gain authority is to achieve this kind of heightened emotional engagement. Uh, And then facts can come in to support that, but you've got to achieve the heightened emotional, you know, investment from your reader that's the only way to get authority these days that makes me think imagine if uh
1: jesus christ was actually he actually rose from the dead again and uh was following the prophecy of revelations and all that was occurring and you got all these people not believing like a plague going around people like it's my freedom i know it's about everyone Mm -hmm. else but you know man like wouldn't it be funny If the only way Christ could convince most people in the world was to be a fiction writer. (laughs) That's a story.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But then you've got to have a problem there. You've got to turn it into a problem. So, you know, how does it go wrong? How does that break down and turn into a huge train wreck? Oh, there's so many ways. Uh, I'm no, you're, not gonna...
1: you're on the spot now. Yeah, no. Uh, <laughs> it's a hypothetical question. So, Brendan, watch. you ask the next one? <laughs> yeah, I don't I have was, an answer. You
0: were talking about, you know, using facts as an expo- exposition dump to kind of establish that authority. Um, I, I liked the uh, element, and, you know, I'm, I'm going to try not to give away too much because, you know, we want people to buy the book and kick you up to number one on Audible. Yes. Um But I, I liked the idea of getting things wrong to kind of establish, um, character almost, um, to, you know, to, to say, you know, you've ta- you talk in multiple parts about, um, trying to think of how to say this without, you know, shitting on, on my characters that I create, but almost making them <laughs> less smart than the reader. Um, because it builds a certain type of sympathy. And, you know, a certain way to do that is to have them get something wrong. So the reader feels that kind of air of superiority. Um and I, I like that kind of idea of two sides of the same the same coin, you know, establishing authority, but then kind of ripping it out of the hands of your character in order to get across to the reader who they really are. Um
2: Go ahead. And also, in a way, you want the reader to adopt them, like the character is the reader's child. You want the reader to be very emotionally invested in the well-being of Rosemary. We know if you see Rosemary's baby, okay, she gets banged by the devil. She gets knocked up and banged by the devil while a bunch of people watch. But she doesn't know that. And so we feel this enormous love I mean, she really, we feel this love and this huge investment in Rosemary's well-being, because we know more than she does, and we want her to come to enlightenment. Gone with the wind. Uh, what is the first thing Scarlett O'Hara says in Gone with the Wind?
0: She says, "The uh, is it? There's not going to be a war. There's
2: not war, war, war." All this talk of war is spoiling all the parties. There is not going to be a war. And so we at our, you know, exalted 21st century place, we know that regardless of her social rank and her beauty and her her charm, she's really stupid. And she's really headed for a disaster. And that Ashley Wilkes is not the guy for her. We know everything that's wrong with her that she doesn't know. And that's what makes us love her. And so if you can have a character express this kind of wrong thinking, then you instantly hook, uh, you hook the audience because the audience feels superior. And because the audience feels superior, then the audience will adopt and really begin to care for the character.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's it's a smart little tip. And it's, uh, you know, so easy to work into, um, you know, multiple, multiple times throughout, you know, a story, just working in that little detail here and there, in order to go from this kind of flat two dimensional character to, you know, somebody that the audience can invest in a little bit easier. I love that. Uh, Patrick, do you have anything to add on Consider This? or uh,
2: Chuck was about to say something. Oh, sorry. It is so easy uh, nowadays with all of our uh, uh, word processing and, and so many technologies. It's, it's really easy to make things look very professional and to achieve authority by making them look slick and clever and look like they were done by really smart, professional people. And again, that kind of authority, because, because it's so easily achieved, it counts for, for much less than it used to. So nowadays, recently I saw a, a cat missing poster in my neighborhood and they had misspelled one word in the cat missing uh, little t- block of text and they misspelled it and that's why I remembered it. And then I kept on seeing that same posting on telephone poles and each time there was a different typo, a different one. And so I became obsessed with them. And I, I know exactly what the cat is called and what it looks like and what number to call and what email address to write to because there was something different wrong with every single poster. And that's what made me engage with it as I had to find the wrong thing with every single one. And it was such a clever way of making that thing stand out uh, because it made me write, you know, when, you, when you're in the, the Asian restaurant and you see the badly translated menu and you kind of chuckle to yourself over this really poor translation, you remember that because it makes you feel superior. And it's a wonderful way of sort of tricking you into liking uh, the restaurant Or liking that missing cat. I really, I am so invested in that cat showing up now. Do you think they did that on purpose? I know they did. They must have. Because in every single poster, there was one small thing wrong. It was almost like a a graduate psychology class came up with that missing cat campaign. Oh. Yeah, and maybe... It was a way of kind of measuring how many people would, would phone in, how people would engage and whether or not they would sort of take part, participate in the search for this cat that might not have even been missing. That's wow, that's next level. That's yeah. very years, years ago, there was a man named Ulf Johansson who was going to direct uh, the original production of the, the Lullaby movie from my book, Lullaby. mm mm-hmm. And his father was a famous Swedish actor who'd played death in all the uh, Bergman movies. And the much younger Ulf Johansson, the grandson, uh, he wanted to be the Swedish David Fincher. And he got a contract for doing 52 commercials for eBay. And his concept was to do 52 commercials all with the same setup but each one would have a slightly smaller, small variation and something wrong with it. So people would wanna see all 52 commercials for eBay so that they could identify these small differences between each of them in Hmm. this viral way. Uh, So it really is about getting things wrong as a way to achieve authority. Wow, that is so cool. So, So Brennan, you asked if I had
1: anything to say about final thoughts on consider this. I mean, Chuck, just kind of pinpointed why you should read it. Um, the majority, if not all of our listeners, are uh, writers, uh, mainly in the horror community. And uh, I would advise any r- r- writer to to read it, to buy the book, because it. I've never heard that advice before anywhere. That's just one example. And it's a damn good example. That alone should give you reason to buy it. Um I'm very fascinated. Chuck brought up a very interesting thing that he wanted to talk about, dead malls. Uh, I was in a, yeah. I was in the mall, just two quick examples. Uh, I was in the mall today, uh, the one in South Jersey that's closest to me. It's not a dead mall. Um, I, I'm sure in a few years it will be, though. But the one back in my hometown, uh, near my hometown of Massachusetts, it's gone. It's not even there. And the strange part is, maybe five years ago, there was this massive arcade sports bar slash bowling alley, like a full length, 18 lane bowling alley installed. And it was doing very well. And, uh, it's, they bulldozed it. Um, I want to hear your thoughts on dead malls and, and, uh, a new term that you introduced to me was
2: retrofuturism. Hmm. You know, uh, Years ago, I'd read a piece and I can't remember if it was in, it was in some fairly intellectual thing like Harper's or the Atlantic or some magazine. And it was about how uh, futuristic architecture in places like Epcot Center, that that was the last vestige of fascism. That, hmm. that when you go to Epcot Center or you go to Tomorrowland at Disneyland, you go to all these kind of pristine visions of the future, That is more or less what fascism was promising in this kind of unified artistic way, this kind of streamlined, uh, completely dictated appearance of everything. And in a way, the mall sort of was the, the, the consumer level of that fascist architecture, this kind of idealized vision of the future imposed in this sort of privatized public space Wow, I sound so smart. I used the term privatized public space. That is so, wow. Um, I love it. (laughs) And so many uh, movies about the future were shot at shopping malls. Logan's Run was shot primarily at a shopping mall because malls were designed to be that kind of streamlined vision of the future. Look how beautiful things can be. Dawn of the Dead. Dawn of the Dead, Night of the Comet was shot in a shopping mall. So in, in a way, you know, our best selves were kind of presented through shopping mall architecture. Uh, and in a way, at a time when I was small, we were told that the Catholic Church had no locks on the doors so that you could go into a church and find sanctuary any time of the day or night. You could enter this beautiful place that was outside of the world that was, in a way, a limnoid place. Mm-hmm. And, and find peace. But well within my childhood, they started to put locks on those doors because people were going into churches and, and trashing them. And after that, it became public consumer spaces that were the large, beautiful spaces you could go into and find tranquility, find acceptance, find beauty. And those were shopping malls. And so they weren't 24 hours, but they were open a lot more than churches were. And they presented that sort of opportunity to to present your best self and to be aware of, you know, uh, all the better things that were possible for you. Um, And now shopping malls are disappearing. So I'm kind of curious what the next sort of limnoid space will be where people model their best selves.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, you know, things repeat Uh, themselves, uh, retro things come back. So I'm I'm curious if, there's going to be a. I, I myself collect books and, and CDs mainly because it's what I grew up with. That's what I love. But um, even when I called Apple to uh, try to figure out an issue with iTunes, like my CDs weren't transferring on there and it wasn't doing what it was supposed to. They're like, you know what? Uh, there's like two people that know that problem. And most of us just deal with like the streaming side of things, the digital side. I thought that was. That was interesting. I bring that up in relation to this because um, I feel like eventually people are going to want the tangible to be physically surrounded again by the products and be with people. So, I, I, I sorry, uh, I wanted to
2: know what your thoughts on that were. Well, I think it's interesting that when so many sort of dying malls are being repurposed,
1: mm-hmm.
2: what they're being repurposed as. Is churches. And so they replaced churches in so many functions in our lives, and now they're becoming churches in, in very literal senses. Mm-hmm. And some malls host one big church and then several different smaller churches in the smaller former retail spaces. So, in a way, they're they're adapt they're adopting that former use. And so you know, I still, I haven't seen the, the next thing. A Cacophony Society, the these kind of limnoid experimenting spaces haven't sort of given us the next thing. Or if it is out there, we don't know about it yet. Mm-hmm. It's still incubating. It's still a kind of cult that is out there and is kind of getting itself right. And it's not going to present itself to us until it really has itself down. Uh, it's going to be enormous, and it's probably going to launch very, very quickly. Yeah, it's probably in the works right now, too. Yeah, think. you know, which is glorious. I love the fact that it hasn't been discovered by the Internet and kind of fucked to death. So,
1: yeah, you can't really, everything's recorded now, man. It's cool, but at the same time, I, I don't know. I, I'm,
2: you know when uh, Anthony Bourdain died. Mm-hmm. network, and I won't say what network came to me and said, we would like you to do an Anthony Bourdain program about subcultures Hmm. where we send you out and you explore a different subculture every week. And I really dislike the idea because I hate the idea that if if a subculture wants to be on television, it's kind of not a subculture anymore. (laughs) You know, if you want to be... On something like the Discovery Channel or the Food Network, you're not underground anymore. Yeah. And if it, is, if it is genuinely underground and still incubating, I don't want to be the one that goes out there and destroys it by bringing it to the public awareness too soon. So I just thought that the, the idea didn't work on every level. That's very interesting. Now, we got to talk about your
1: latest book, you The Invention of Sound. I um, haven't even touched on that yet. Uh, I just want to put in my two cents before you or Brennan dive in. You did something, man, like, to, to me within the... Because I listen to the audio version, and within the first 40 minutes, I... And this is only a compliment. I put it down, and I need a few days. There's a part where there's a line of... Men, and I'll leave it at that. And that's interesting because not even The Girl Next Door by Jack Ketchum did that to me. Um, I don't know. You tapped into something. Maybe it's because I'm a dad now. I don't know. But good job. Is there anything that you want to say about that book? Tell potential readers what it's about. Uh, anything.
2: You know, there's two tried and true ways of establishing authority, and one is to have the missing child that's unresolved and yeah. one is to have the missing parent that's unresolved. And when you're marketing a story to children, so many Disney movies, so many situation comedies on TV are based on the dead parent. Frady Bunch, two dead parents, Partridge family, dead dad, one day at a time, dead dad, uh, Julia, dead dad, so many Disney movies, dead mother, uh, uh Nemo whatever that little fish movie was dead mother that if you're marketing was that Tarzan the two parents got killed by uh by a wild animal and so anytime you're marketing a story to to kids mm-hmm. show them their worst case scenario is if mom or dad dies and show them a child that is living with the fact a uh, family affair mom and dad died Show them a story in which children are living beyond the death of one or both of their parents. And children will automatically engage with that completely emotionally because it's their worst case scenario and they want to be shown how to live through that in case they ever have to live through that. And if you're selling a story to adults, show them a dead or a missing kid because that is their worst, worst case scenario. And they will be so instantly hooked and invested in a character who's trying to resolve a missing a child. I think and so that, Invention of Sound has both the, the male protagonist is involved in a missing child and the female protagonist is involved in a missing parent. So you get it both ways.
1: I think you made a third and I can't say the scene because it would ruin it. But the one that made me kindly put it down for a few days, I think you made a third category in there, man, because uh, even though I read it, there's no way I could react besides
2: being like my mind just broke. (laughs) (laughs) There's another sort of fantastically formulaic thing that always works. And this is, since we're, I wouldn't tell this to the general public, but I will tell it to writers is put an animal in peril, it always works. All my writer friends who are successful, they say, if the narrative lags, put an animal in peril. Yeah, Because people will automatically engage with the dog that runs into traffic or any kind of an animal that might come to harm. Is that, you know, it always works. And and people use it because it works. Bambi. <laughs> yes! Oh my gosh, they kill the mother and the animals in peril. Wow, it's hitting on every cylinder. Uh,
1: <laughs> my friend wrote a uh, Todd Keesland, uh, this great author. He um, he wrote one. I believe it was him wrote one where a cat gets killed, and he loves cats, and he pissed off this one lady really bad to the point where it got a little weird, and I'm pretty sure he had to tell her. I don't I can't remember if he didn't know how to react or if he wanted to say like it's I didn't really kill a cat. <laughs> People get really invested in that. Yeah. Brendan, take us away. What do you have to say about the invention of sound? I, I, I have to say,
0: my, you know, besides besides being able to kind of relate with that that miss that parent missing a child aspect, um, you know, as a musician and you know, going through kind of the I'm not. I, I'll go with secrets of recording, but just the the tricks of recording is better. I just found endless entertainment in all the you know uh, research. I suppose that that you put into it um, with the the different screams, and then your own take on how the different sound effects um, uh, are are produced. Um, and, and and there's this great mix throughout the story where we can see, or at least we assume this is fact and this is Chuck's imagination. Um, so I was kind of curious, what was your process for, you know, deep diving on the factual nature of Hollywood sound effects?
2: Uh, one was just a, a lot of talking to people who who make movies, who make uh, who, a lot of people who are fully artists and, uh, and finding out what they do you know, to create different effects. And the most important part was not putting too much of that stuff in because that stuff can overwhelm the story so much and be such a distraction that it's no longer achieving authority. It, it becomes a drag on the plot. So the, the greater question is how much do you put in before it becomes kind of an albatross? And I find myself doing constant, uh, whether it's podcasts or whether it's uh, satellite radio shows that are linked up, but I'm always, or audio books, where I'm in a recording studio and I'm talking to the technician. There's always the, the sort of unsung hero who wears the headphones and gets the levels right. And so those are the guys, or sometimes women, who I want to talk to and sort of pick their brains about Uh, The things that go right or wrong, or a lot of my friends are musicians and they know a lot about how to sweeten recordings. So it gave me something to talk about in all of these recording studios and and really give people a chance to shine to tell me what they really knew about how recording had changed across time. Um, So it was a great way to pass time. It was a great way to kind of tap into what people knew the very best in those situations Uh, but by the end of the day, I had to leave out 90% of it Mm. because if you put too much of that stuff in, it becomes a nonfiction book about recording. Mm. And that, you know, I'm not surprised
0: at that, but when I think of your books, a lot of them have that element where I feel, (laughs) I feel like I'm getting smarter when I read them. I feel like I'm learning different things and they're always, obscure facts that i don't know that i would have any other way of coming across so i mean at this point in your career when you're uh, how active um is trying to find that balance and cut that 90 percent is it something where you put like so much in and you still have to cut it or do you find that you can pretty much just go at it the first time and figure out what the right balance is
2: by now Now, there's a third way of using that information that is much more subtle than this kind of information dump, and that is, how does knowing that information affect the narrator's or the character's perception of the world? Because you can depict their body of knowledge by how they describe the world around them, and that's one way of using that information to talk about, they could hear a song on the radio and know exactly in what way it was sweetened or it was flattened or, you know, how that voice is no longer a, a dry voice. So you don't just have to state this kind of litany of facts. You can salt it into how they perceive the world, how the world occurs for them through this kind of lens of the information they know. So that's one much smarter way of getting that information in there without really flagging it. But more and more, and I hate to depict this as a gender difference, but guys are always watching the History Channel and women are always watching the Lifetime Network. And the narratives operate completely different. History is this kind of continual teaching of facts, this presenting of sort of seemingly factual information. Where the Lifetime Network is this constant sort of triggering of emotional states and heightening of emotional states and sort of respite resolving of emotional states. And one thing I found that's kind of in between is about a year ago, I was teaching a workshop and we were talking about a magazine store going out of business and how, when I had been there doing research, people were always bringing in these huge collections of Playboy magazines that the store would not buy because no one has ever thrown away a Playboy in the history of mankind. People hold on to them forever. And one of my students said, I wonder if that's how the big box of porn in the woods happens. And everyone got quiet because everyone in that room as a child had found a box, or a bag or a suitcase or a garbage bag or a duffel bag full of porn in the desert or in the woods or on a golf course or on a beach. And they had never told anybody about it. And in the next few moments, the entire workshop, people in age from 18 to like 65, they went nuts because they were suddenly united with an experience that none of them had ever talked about, but they had all had. And so it's a kind of identifying of a human experience that is more or less universal, but that people have never, ever discussed or processed. And so we went crazy. The, the workshop for the next several weeks was really adamant about creating an anthology of everyone's finding porn as a child story. And we were actually going to call it children of children of the porn. (laughs) That was Trisha's idea. (laughs) And you would not believe the resistance that publishers have to a title that includes children and porn. But it's one way of creating a kind of hybrid of emotional state, lifetime network, and factual state, history channel that gives people both a kind of anthropological scientific-y thing and a really heightened emotional attachment thing. So if you can do that, that is the ultimate kind of authority you can achieve because suddenly everyone is enormously invested on every level in that thing.
1: Can you imagine the reaction on the title alone that the public, it'd
2: be on like all these bad lists and you'd sell out, man. And the fact is that 99% of the people who read that book would have their own story. You go to a party and you bring that up as a, as a topic, you know, you tell your little story. This is what I found. And everyone listening who's had a drink will jump forward with a better story. (laughs) And some of these stories are heartbreaking. So some of these people, they drag it home to their parents. And it's the first time that they've really had a break from their parents. Their parents shame them so intensely that it really is. uh, That's why they've never talked about it. Mm. It gives people an opportunity to talk about the thing they never thought they could ever talk about. Uh, And it recognizes it and it doesn't judge it. It just allows them to finally, finally be rid of it.
1: I feel like that's how writing is for me I can't speak for anyone else but for me that's how I mean going back to what Brennan said earlier uh, that's how I started writing horror really getting into horror I was long story short dealing with a lot of toxicity in my life with friends and family and I needed an outlet man I couldn't turn to liquor because that's, uh, that's a vice in my Irish family and I didn't, I didn't want to do anything harmful I wrote all these people that were causing me a lot of stress into tormented scenes. And I'm like, if no one reads it, that's fine because I'm dealing with these emotions right now. I'm really angry. I'm confused. I'm mad. And I still, to this day, kind of, I'm sad years later about how they ended, but Hey man, there's fodder for the, the mill of writing. That's the, that's the positive, the silver lining that I think we all take away as writers. Yeah. Now, there is something I would like to talk. One more thing that you brought up, Chuck, um, before we start recording uh, is, and I don't know how it's the segue into this, discovering new forms of horror and avoiding tropes. I'd
2: love to know what your ideas with that is. You know, uh, I, sometimes the best way into that is not to talk about what the next thing would be, but to talk about previous things that horror uh, uh, represented for people. And I've always been told that Bram Stoker and the creation of the, the, uh, the vampire you know, mythology was generated because uh, so many Eastern European Jews were moving to the West. And so many Western countries required that if you were Jewish, you had to make at least one trip to Jerusalem every year to maintain your dual citizenship. And so one of the few countries that allowed Jews to move there without having to do this obligatory once or twice a year pilgrimage to Jerusalem was Great Britain. So you're getting a large number of very affluent, wealthy uh, Jewish people moving to London and buying a lot of property and becoming very influential. And so supposedly people were so reactive to Bram Stoker's Dracula because it depicted this thing that they could not talk about being really nervous about. That all of their fear couldn't be expressed about the current political social situation. So it was expressed about this kind of contamination of the blood and this kind of corrupt nobility moving into London and this kind of dark metaphoric thing. And in a similar way, uh, the Frankenstein monster, the universal Frankenstein movies were such a hit because people came back from world war one. So massively disfigured that the people would have died who would have died in any previous war, Medical science was able to save them in World War, World War I. And so they're coming back with these fantastic burns, these, these fantastic mutilations that they would have died from at any other point. But now they were walking the streets. And so, so people in the 1920s and into the 30s were having to see these walking monsters and having to be nice to them and having to actually feel sympathy for them because they were just genuine you know, soldiers who had survived and come home were having to live with these horrible disfigurements. And so when Universal came out with Frankenstein, the the Jim Wales Frankenstein, it allowed people to kind of embrace monsters who were walking in their midst. And there were kind of likable monsters and there were monsters who were human. And so it gave people a way of kind of sorting through and processing this horror there was feeling around world war one survivors. Hmm. Uh, and so whether you, you know, it's Rosemary's baby dealing with uh, the, the children who were affected by the or th- th- thalidomide, whether it was movies like the hunger, uh, which were kind of dealing with addiction and seemed kind of a precursor for dealing with AIDS. You know, what is the thing that people cannot talk openly about right now? That is the thing that they are looking for horror to express for them, to give them a safe metaphor to kind of explore and exhaust their emotional reaction to.
0: And I think that comes, a lot of that comes back to, you know, you said, I asked you what kind of research you did for the invention of sound. And you said, I talked to people um, earlier, you shared with us that a lot of, you know, the places you write are places where you see people at their most vulnerable um, or, you know, kind of emotionally open. Um, and, you know, the question that immediately jumps to mind when you say the future of horror is finding out what the next thing that people are afraid to talk about and basing, you know, a narrative ba- basing, uh, you know, finding the problem in that Um the way to find that is, is to talk to people and, you know, collect experiences. Um, do you agree?
2: Yeah, it is, but it's, it's, it's tougher than that because if people can actually acknowledge it, then it's not the thing it's, mm. it's, it's, it's in a way, in a way you, you try to find the metaphor and then you present them with a metaphor and see if they engage with a metaphor because they're not going to engage or acknowledge the real thing that they're actually frightened about because it's too dangerous. It's too socially condemning for them to hmm. say, yes, I am worried about this big thing happening. That if people are actually talking about it like global warming, it's not really the thing that terrifies them the most. The thing that, the, that they cannot talk about is the thing that you're looking for because that's what terrifies them the most. That excites me. I want to find that out. I want
1: to know what that is. Uh, I heard you on an interview, I forget who it was with, but um, you were talking about how you just kind of crank up the intensity, the pushing the boundaries. And that's, that's been stuck in my head, man. I, I love it uh, because that's, I mean, that's kind of what we do with horror. uh, it's not necessarily like, hey, let's make this brutally visceral or let's make this disgusting. It's just what what unnerves you and how can I get there and then kind of crank it up. That's how I took it with what you said uh, as far as turning up to 11. I don't know. if I, I'm paraphrasing. Um, I'm curious if you have any comments on that.
2: I always feel like I have to go too far. Yeah, I just turned in a book and my agent – kicked it back and he said, there's one aspect of it that goes too far. And to give away this too far, there is a character in the book who advertises that he can infect people with HIV because he knows there's a certain segment of the population who's very young and would love to have disability for the rest of their lives. So he says, $500 cash, And I can make you HIV positive Mm -hmm. and you'll be set for life and, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, Because there is this sort of subculture of of bug chasers and gift givers, this thing that's kind of not acknowledged openly in the larger culture. But the thing is, he doesn't have HIV. So he's basically just looking to really uh, have sex with very young people. uh, And he's, In his own mind, he is saving them from HIV because they think they're getting it from him when, in fact, they're just paying him $500 to have sex. So in his mind, he's doing a noble thing, but he's also making money from it. Hmm. And my agent said, that is, you cannot do that. You cannot (laughs) have a character who is doing this, I'm going to pause you for $500 thing. That is so beyond you know, polite conversation. And I said, that's ex- that's exactly why I have to have it because there has to be something in every work that goes one step too far. Because if you don't do that for the rest of your life, you'll be thinking, especially as you grow old, when you get old, you'll think, why didn't I do that thing? When When I was young and I had nothing at risk and I had guts and I had energy, And I had all this boldness. Why didn't, why did I hold back? Why didn't I do that thing that was one step too far in fight club? It was that line where Marla has sex with Tyler for the first time. And I thought, what is the most romantic thing she would say? And that is, I want to have your baby. And so I said, what is the least romantic thing she could say? And that's. I really want to have your abortion. Yeah. And it was so wrong. And everyone hated that line. And 20th Century Fox hated that line. And Brad Pitt hated that line. Everyone hated that line. But that is my, my too far. There has to be a too far. Because if you don't have it too far, then you will beat yourself up for the rest of your, of your life for not having gone that, that little bit too far. And a great quote by you again. And consider this: is uh,
1: you write to be remembered, not to be liked. And I love that. That that is tattooed in my head, man. That is that's brilliant.
2: You know, and it's those too far things that stay in people's memory, and they may not accept the thing at the moment they read it or consume it or experience it, but if it stays in their memory, then as time changes and they change. Mm then it's much more likely that they'll eventually like it or love it or at least accept it.
1: So, Chuck, I'd love to know, what can we expect next from
2: you? A strange novel called uh, Greener Pastures, but that won't be out for another year or so. That's the one with the
1: where agents said that uh, that one part was going too far with the HIV infection.
2: Gift-giving, bug-chasing, that's it. <laughs>
1: Donut Glazing. I, I can't wait for it. Uh, is there any books
2: or authors you want to plug? Uh, uh, Tyler Jones and his yep. book Criterium. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is sort of fleshing that out and turning it into a, a, a much larger book. And so Tyler and Criterion, And uh, Tyler is the one who, who, who made our introductions today. So thank you, Tyler.
1: Yeah, he, he's a great guy. He's quickly become friends of ours and we're having him on in three different capacities this year very excited for that um, guys any final thoughts uh, we've we've had Chuck on for an hour and a half so that's plenty of time of his his uh, <laughs> yeah we appreciate that but Chuck any final thoughts at all anything you want to say any weird noises you want to make <laughs> <laughs> no
2: but you know uh, uh, happy Easter. Yes, happy uh, Easter. Always been one of my favorite holidays. Oh, happy Easter. No kidding. Huh. Learn
1: that today. Brittany, <laughs> any final thoughts? No, I want to uh, thank Chuck
0: for being extremely generous with his time. Um, you know, this having a conversation with you sir is is something that I, I, if I went back twenty years and you know told myself it'd be happening, I'd I'd call future me a liar. Uh, this has been a lifelong dream, seriously, and I can't thank you enough for your
1: time. I want to end the show there, but uh, we haven't scratched the surface.
0: <laughs> well, you'll and have we to have come back. We have not even scratched the surface.
1: Okay. Seriously, okay. anytime you want to come back, absolutely, we'll we'll make it happen. Uh, I just want to remind everybody that. You should really consider consider this. Buy it and make it number one on Audible. Didn't even mean to do that. <laughs> it's an excellent book. It's in, It's one of. Oh. <laughs> it's one of the top books that I think can really help with the craft and industry. No bullshit take on what to expect from it. Even if you're not new and you're you've been around a while, I'd I'd consider it. Ha, I did again. But, um, Invention of Sound, also check that out. Paperback comes out September 7th. It is the book, the only book, not even the girl next door could do this to me. Um, had to put it down. A book that is the
2: misanthropic adolescent book of all time, but is a favorite of mine, a book I love. What is it? Which became a decent Jodie Foster movie. Have you read Little Girl Who Lives Down the Lane? No. No. It's from the 1970s. I'm writing it down right now. The Girl Who Lived Down the Lane. The Girl Who Lived Down the Lane. And it's the most unlikely feature film uh, that you will ever imagine getting funding.
1: Uh, I wrote down, man. I want to check it out. <laughs> absolutely, if you're suggestion, suggesting it, I absolutely am going to look into that. Yep. Um, I got no final thoughts besides, uh, I know a lot of listeners have already expressed... Uh, tremendous interest in this episode. I think it's going to be the most listened to one to date. Um, Again, I appreciate your time, man. This is so cool. Uh, Everyone listening, my brain's a little frazzled still talking to Chuck. Uh, I can't believe this is happening, but every listener for joining us uh, on previous episodes, this one and future ones, thank you. And to get all your Dead Headspace merchandise needs, all you have to do is go to DeadHeadspace.com, click the store tab, and you can find the first lineup of merchandise from stickers, T-shirts, coffee mugs, and a mask as well as a notebook. DeadHeadspace.com, we'd appreciate you going there. Feel free to take a photo with the merch too. Send it on over to our Twitter at Dead underscore Headspace. Next week, we have Wabgishig Rice, indigenous writer. Uh, he wrote Moon of the Crust of Snow, an excellent book. Uh, we'll talk more about that next week. Thank you, everybody.
0: It. You are now
1: leaving Deadhead Space.